You have tuned into Geek Elite Radio. Good luck. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth, in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, Bunk? Directors that star in their own movies, like, how many can you think of that uh, have done it successfully? I mean, asked uh, our recent guest, Tim, to be on it because his uh, Dream of Me series, he obviously directed and, and starred in that. Um, yeah, I mean, there there's Tim. Um, <laughs> obviously, we have John Krasinski now. Um, ben Affleck has been very successful at it. And I mean starred, like, act, like a starring role, not just, uh, you know, a cameo like M. Night Shyamalan. Right, right, yeah. I wasn't thinking of him, and I wasn't thinking of Albert Hitchcock, but um, Clint Eastwood. Clint, Clint Eastwood, Eastwood, yeah, that's definitely one. And uh, uh, Woody Allen. Woody Allen, yeah. Oh, you know, he's probably, I don't know, I don't know exactly, but I know his movies bring in a lot of money, but uh, Tyler Perry, his, like, Medea movies, they always bring in a lot of money, so they have to be oh, successful, yeah. right? A lot of money. Um, hmm. That's a really good question. I'm sure there's a bunch more, but I I can't can't quite think of any at the top of my head. Did Paul Newman? Paul Newman directed and acted in some of his movies, didn't he? Did he? I know he directed and obviously he acted. I don't know if he directed and acted at the same time though. That's a good question. I can't. Think. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if he did both at the same time or not. Um, what I mean. As a person who's done both, what do you think, uh, like, the challenges of being behind the camera and being in front of the camera at the same time are? Um, I mean, obviously, there's a huge amount of control that you're going to give up, right? Because especially on sets, when things get crazy and hectic, like, you're not going to always have time to run over and be like, hey, show me playback of that, right? So, I mean, you're going to have to trust heavily on your script supervisor your cinematographer and everyone else on set to make sure that they're capturing what needs to be captured and i think it's also difficult too because as a as a director you're basically sitting at a monitor with headphones on and you're watching the film play out in front of you on the screen so there's obviously a very different mental process that's happening when you're acting in a scene right because uh essentially what you should have is scene well more than that you should have about 90 percent of yourself in the scene and about 10 percent of yourself not in the scene right right 10 percent should be grounded in reality now if you're asking me could 10 percent of myself uh, tell whether or not that scene was perfect from my director's mind. I don't know that I'm skilled enough yet to accomplish that because that's a huge, that's a huge thing to just be in the scene in that moment, making something feel fresh and like it's happening for the first time um, from your performance and from everyone else's performance in the scene. And then also providing feedback to that's not in some way encouraging you to be more powerful and them not be powerful, right? Like if, if you could, 
I don't know. I'm just saying you could find a fall into that pitfall, if you will, of like sort of winning the scene every time through your directing, which isn't obviously what you're supposed to do. And you shouldn't be doing that if you're a good director. But as an actor, that's that is part of what your motivation is, is you are in that scene to what motivates your character. And so you just have to be careful, I think, through your directing to make sure that you're not manipulating other actors to allow that to unorganically happen, if that makes any sense. Uh, you know, I, I think that makes perfect sense. So, yeah, yeah, taking on the role of both director and lead actor is got to be, got to be difficult. And, and yes, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. You're putting your trust into a lot of your uh, staff, crew. Uh, I mean, not that a director doesn't already put a lot of the trust into the crew, but I would assume that means they have to be a lot more of your eyes and ears while you're trying to stay in character in front of the camera and, and you know, making sure the scene gets made or, or gets uh, gets the respect that it, it, it deserves. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know... You're right. There is a lot of relinquishing of power and and the transposition. That's not even a word. The transition of power. <laughs> um, I was thinking of like two different words at one time there. Um, transposition. That's my new word, though. Transition of power. Transposition. There it is. You heard it here first, folks. Um, the transition of power to your crew. Yes, you, you're always going to have that. And, you know, that's why a lot of filmmakers work with the same crew over and over and over and over and over again. But inherently, when you're acting in a scene, you're giving up even more. You're you're 100% giving another level of, of trust, another level of power to your crew and the rest of the cast, right? And you're right. I think that definitely has to be challenging. Now, there are some films, like you said, where they're doing cameos or maybe their scenes aren't quite as abundant as some of the other actors and, you know, maybe that might make it a little bit easier, but it's always going to be a challenge, I would say, to a very large degree. So uh, throw on another level of maybe challenge. I would assume that they're both very professional and stuff, but uh, John Krasinski being the director of uh, A Quiet Place, as well as the one of the lead actors, uh, cast his wife, Emily Blunt, as the other lead actress in the movie. Do you think that throws on another another layer of difficultness, uh, having to direct your wife in the movie as well, star alongside her? Or is that better because the the fact that you're going to be comfortable with each other? Um, I think it's a double-edged sword. And I think of how... I think of how sharp each edge of the sword is depends on the relationship. Um, obviously, I don't know Emily and John personally, but everything I've heard is that they're very uh, they're a very strong couple. Um, they're very loving and and fun going and just very positive, powerful people. Um, I did hear a story that initially Emily Blunt wasn't going to be involved and. Um, she really, I guess, didn't have any desire to be involved until she sat down and read the script for the first time. And uh, when, when apparently when she was done reading the script the first time, she looked over at, at John Krasinski and said, it's got to be me. Like, I have to play this role. And I think with this movie specifically and who they seemingly are on the surface or who they are to the general public, at least, 
I don't think it would make things more challenging for the two of them. I think this is very much a situation where the final product and their performances are going to be more powerful because, and, and the reason I say that is because of obviously it seems like their relationships in a very good place, but the content, the overall message of this movie or what I believe to be the overall message that John Krasinski was trying to get out there, I think strengthens by having them not only as husband and wife, but as a parental unit together. Right. Uh, Because this movie, although it's about aliens or monsters, whatever you want to call them, and kind of this uh, pandemic or post-apocalyptic world, the movie to me really feels more... um, Kind of like I was trying to think of the name of the movie that um, Michael Shannon was in. Um, Midnight Special. Midnight Special. Yeah, I was going to say Midnight Express was a totally different movie, but Midnight <laughs> Special, right? Midnight Special is a movie about a boy who has powers, but it feels like a love letter from a parent to their children or their child, and that's exactly what a quiet place feels like to me. This really feels more about John Krasinski's overall magnum opus of love for his wife and children, and I think there's also a very clear chance for an argument to be made that it's just about parents and the links they're willing to go for that love for their children as well. And I think that's kind of the more broad spectrum purpose for this film, despite what it seems like on the surface. Yeah. uh, So the character of Evelyn Abbott that um, Emily Blunt portrays, uh, as the story goes, she had originally told her husband, John Krasinski to, uh, cast a friend of theirs uh first until she did read that uh, the draft that he particularly wrote so his rewrite of the uh the gentleman's who wrote the original script uh then she said no she needed to be cast in it and um the uh the other part that you brought up which sorry what'd you say um Oh, I was just saying it really feels more like a love letter for parents to children or about being a parent than about surviving alien or, you know, monsters, whatever they are. Yeah, and that uh, uh, Krasinski at first had no desire whatsoever to be in a horror movie until they explained to him that, you know, the whole movie uh, takes place in silence, well, at least for a good majority of the movie. Uh, Then he was all aboard after you know, getting that and reading the script, I, I, I assume. Um, so I, I would, I would assume that he saw something in there saying, you know, that he would, uh, shape this in a way that it would be like that love letter to, to being a parent or to, uh, you know, having a child to protect, you know, someone that you needed to, uh, be there for at all times kind of thing. And it definitely shows through in the movie. Uh, some of the things that the, they portray in a, in a quiet place of uh, that that in reality we take for granted, I would have to say, uh, mm-hmm. is definitely exposed in this movie, and and it comes through especially in the score, sound effects, sound, sound editing, the- sound mixing. 
like the foley sounds yeah yeah the foley sounds just just everything like uh to the point that when you know the character of millicent no millicent simmons is the actress uh i don't remember what the daughter's name in the movie is but reagan reagan thank you reagan reagan abbott she you know she suffers from or is afflicted with uh deafness and she has a cochlear implant that is no longer work and uh when the the camera or the story or the movie is portraying from her point of view uh, all the sound drops out and it is used so effectively that you're in a theater and for me personally i was in a full theater a packed theater that you did not hear a pin drop in the you know or you could have heard a pin drop if you wanted to. It's just, it was, uh, it was silent. It was so silent, you know, for it's a movie that, uh, would have been, you know, a popular weekend stuff like that. You know, if you go to any other movie, you probably would have heard a child cry. You would have heard, uh, people eating popcorn, slurping on a drink, but nothing. So that's just how intense I felt this movie was. Yeah, I I definitely agree with you. Um, they use that very effectively. Uh, it, it is interesting too because it doesn't it doesn't do the same thing that every movie kind of does in the sense of just being completely silent. It it changes to because even silence to the human ear isn't one hundred percent silent, right? Like there's this weird atmospheric pressure or um, you know different like kind of electrons kind of hitting the hairs in your ears whatever you want to call it it does have its own presence and i think that's one of the things they could have done right was they could have um dropped the sound out entirely and had nothing but they didn't they added this layer of just i guess the only way i could really describe it is just kind of this this atmospheric pressure on um reagan's ears and and so there's still just this innate different feeling that you get because you know that you're you know that you're now seeing the world through her eyes and hearing it um through the lack of the way that she hears it which is another fascinating about this movie is millicent the young uh, actor who plays reagan is i believe herself deaf yeah she was um, she's been deaf since uh early early childhood when she was given an overdose of a prescription uh, on accident my gosh i didn't know that that's how that had occurred but, yeah but yeah that's that's um i think that's truly incredible i think that's very powerful i think it's another uh way of hopefully the film industry moving more and more into um inclusion of of you know not just women but of you know people that uh, suffer from different uh, inflictions and uh, and things like that. So um, I think that that's wonderful. And I think she did a, a very wonderful job in the movie. But I do agree. I think whoever's decision it was to illustrate that that way in the film, I would imagine that that was essentially John Krasinski's as the director. But then again, you never know. It could have been a suggestion from anyone else. But I do appreciate the way that they kind of established how the world felt different through the different characters. I thought that was really smart. Um, I want to say that uh, I think the biggest obstacle that you ever, that you have in a 
creature horror film uh, is that once you show the actual monster, uh, you're either going to lose your audience or they're going to, they're going to love it. You know what I mean? You, you understand what I'm saying in that? Like there's been a lot of horror movie, monster movies where as soon as the audience sees the creature they they think it looks ridiculous or, you know, it looks too fake or it doesn't make any sense. And then, all, and then that really kills the movie as opposed to like, um, uh, jaws where you know you don't see the the shark until really late in the film and and it the tension of it has just built to the point where people accept you know the way that the shark looks Mm -hmm. so how did you feel about the the look of the monster in this well um i think i think you bring up a, a a very interesting point that links to um kind of my overall feeling about this movie in the sense that this movie has very polarized um my opinion of it is very polarized in the fact that the things that they do well they do extremely well um and then the things that they don't do well or that i felt were missed opportunities um kind of really felt like it was almost like John Krasinski's, you know, lack of experience as a director or as a, you know, as the head of the ship of a narrative feature, I guess I should say. We should say Um, that this is his third time being a director. Right. Um, So it's not his first time, you know, it's not his first rodeo, but obviously I think this is a little bit different than his other films because this is more of a horror genre. Um, But when we get to the monster specifically, the design I thought was good. I liked the design of the overall creature. I actually enjoy the fact that we kind of see it pretty much right out of the gate. Um, we don't get a super up close look at it, right? Right. But, but we do get enough of a visual to to really kind of understand what the monster looks like. Now, in terms of the monster design, though, this is where I start to run into a bit of a of a problem. It is it's more in the ability of how these creatures hunt, which is only by sound. Right. They don't hunt by smell, sight. They are seemingly only able to uh, hunt by sound. My problem with that is, is anytime you have a film, anytime you have any story and you establish the rules of the world of your story, you are now or should be bound to those rules irrefutably right they should never fluctuate they should never change unless there's some huge reveal in the world that allows those rules to then be broken that thus makes story to the sense and moves the story forward the monsters are they hunt by sound but the sounds and the way that they receive sound and hunt are fluctuated out heavily throughout the movie and I found myself actually being taken out of the film multiple, multiple times by being more inquisitive as to how the sound mechanics for the monsters actually really work. Because there was no, there was no like finite rule that was set fast and hard. It was just they hunt by sound. And there's a little bit of a hint here or there when we see, you know... Um, 
Lee and uh, Marcus, which is John Krasinski, the father, Lee, and his son, Marcus. Um, and they're going fishing. And, you know, he does explain, like, the whole sound level thing. Like, well, there's a river here. There's a water here. So as long as we don't get, as long as we don't get too loud, they can, they, they can basically only hear one sound at a time. Right, yeah. They, they, they essentially, if there's a louder noise nearby, it will mask the the noise that they can make, or uh, it will at least distract them, like uh, later on with the fireworks. Right, exactly. But that's that's one of the things that I felt bugged me about the overall monster design. It wasn't the visual representation of it, but rather the rules behind how the monster worked. So that's a long winded answer to your question, but that's. <laughs> That, that's what I felt. Uh, I didn't. What, what about you, though? I was gonna say I didn't feel that much. Uh, it, that particular part of it did not take me out. Like I was able to accept the rule of if you had another loud noise, it was it would be able to mask out their their voices so that they could talk. Like, and to me, I guess it was more of the the moment in the movie where he gets to talk to his son, and you know. He's uh he's calming him down to be like, look, there there are ways if you're smart enough to to figure this out to to uh, work around the problems and and it's it's to me it's a very uh, touching moment where he gets to talk to his son who probably has doesn't get I mean obviously doesn't get to hear his father's voice all that often um and then they have the discussion uh, I, don't, I don't remember I don't think it's the part that part I think it's done in sign language when he's when the Marcus is talking to Lee he's saying you know uh, do you hate her uh, specifically talking about Reagan and he's like no I love you guys and he's like well you should tell her every once in a while you know kind of thing uh, mm-hmm. that that was a great dialogue but one of the things that took me out of the movie and uh, well one is the Lee's workshop, I guess is the best way to put it, where he has all the news clippings and dry erase boards and stuff like that. And there was like, there was just like, like the whole part of what's its weakness, which comes into play later. It's like, it, it's too, it was too on the nose. It was too blatant. Like it shouldn't, I I really feel like it shouldn't have been there. Like it could have been told to us in a better way uh, through the movie. And then, uh, how they eventually quote unquote defeat the monster or at least one of the monsters. It, to me, the only thing that really saved that for me was the fact that they threw up those title cards where it said, uh, 90 days after, uh, the incident or 90 days after or something. I don't remember exactly what it says, but it says like 90 some days. Uh, and then the next title card says like, 400 some days so the only thing i can assume is that if after 90 days the world that the abbots live in is already that decimated that the creatures came in and destroyed and killed everybody so quickly that no one had the opportunity to try and uh overpower them with with sound like how they end up doing in the end of the movie yeah um I mean, yes, there's a lot of backstory that we don't get. Um, And again, like I said, I I think a lot of that comes back to that whole overlying objective, which is more to create this love story uh, about, you know, parents and their children than than the monsters. But I agree. And I I found myself 
and I guess, you know, obviously I'm not a parent, so my, my mind is, is going to work very differently and I'm going to enjoy films differently. So for me, I was more interested in how the world fell uh, or fell. I was more interested in knowing more about the creatures, where they came from. Um, and I agree. I think the whole uh, situation of, you know, oh, well, what's its weakness? Like, I, I totally felt that you're right. That was way too on the nose. It was just way too direct. And at the end of the day, it's like, if you're going to overlook some things and say, well, they don't really matter because this is my true objective, then I don't think you need to necessarily go out of your way to be like, hey, here's the situation of, of I don't know what the weakness is and we're going to discover it. So let's make sure we don't lose anybody in the audience because they won't understand why the monster is able to get shot in the face at the end with a shotgun. And it wasn't before, you know, <laughs> and I agree. I, that's another element where it feels like that's kind of the inexperience of John Krasinski as a director. Uh, I would just, I say like, I think that uh, one thing I did really love about this movie is the the opening scene um you know as, as you watch it in and you see from the trailers which i would say the trailer for this movie really does a great job of cutting away uh before you see what actually happens in that scene the little boy gets snagged up he gets eaten and i was n i really was not expecting that i'm i'm expecting john krasinski's character of lee to get there in time and save his son but when the the little boy is killed and eaten and presumably eaten by the monster, that really sets up a a a, a set of stakes, uh, a anything can happen kind of situation for me, and like I really am worried for this family at this point. Yeah, um, I completely agree. I I think that was a very powerful scene. I do feel, again, and this is me, you know, backseat filmmaking, which is, of course, easy to do. It's easy to look on the outside and find these things that I would have done different, not being in the situation and not having the same constraints that, that he had making this film. So take this all with a grain of sand, right? Um, I do feel it's a little weird to me at the same time because it's like they've been in this world for a while, I mean, you look at the the sheer amount of sand that they have poured out all over this town as a family. There is no way that that little boy wouldn't understand. There's no way that he would have... Maybe he didn't know that the spaceship would have made that noise. But he would have absolutely known what would have happened the moment that noise came on. And I feel... Like a remedy for that is the sound comes on and the monster just quickly eliminates the child, right? Um, or maybe there was some sort of wind up to the noise where it started quieter and, you know, only John Krasinski could have heard it and started taking after him or, you know, I, I don't know, there's got to be some sort of way to fix that. Because again, that's another moment where I'm like, there is no way that kid would not have just thrown that toy away the moment it made that noise. He would have wholeheartedly known what was going to happen. I, if he didn't, then he had no business being out there. Well, I, I'll give you that, that he had no business being out there. But I think 
this might become come from your I don't want to say your inexperience as a parent since you don't you're not a parent, but the fact that the child it, it's a child the the world has only been like this for ninety days. You know, before ninety days, he could play with it, whatever toy he wanted. He's he is super young. I mean, this is like an age three or four year old child. He might not understand that you know the the toy making that noise would is going to attract the monster. He just doesn't realize he doesn't understand why everybody's just starting to be quiet all the time and he can't make any noise. And you're right. You're very right. Like I said, I am definitely not a parent, so I cannot speak from from that particular element to it. But I I feel like and, and maybe I'm a complete a-hole for saying this. But I feel like if you're living in this world for 90 days, three months, and you haven't sat down and had a difficult conversation with your child about how fatal any noise is, I mean, I don't understand like how that kid's not going to have those questions. Like, why can't I play with this toy? Why can't I make noise? Why do we not wear shoes anymore? Why do we walk 20 miles in the sand? Like... I just don't see any way that you don't have that conversation. And if you don't, like, it feels like bad parenting because that's exactly what happened. You get your <laughs> child killed. No, it's, it's, it, well, one, you're already talking about having a conversation. We already know they can't have conversations. Two, I, they, I, I still think I that yeah, he's not old enough to understand. He, How is he not old enough? My, my niece started speaking sign language before she vocally spoke that kid is old enough to know or learn how to speak sign language especially when he has a deaf sister I, I, like i don't buy that like those are those are just the things that make it feel like inexperience in filmmaking like those are those are to me at least blatant holes and flaws within the story that should have been addressed and not only that, but let me ask you this. Again, neither one of us are parents. But if you're a parent and you see your child has this toy that makes noise and you pay, take the batteries out and the toy and set it on the counter, are you really going to walk off and leave the kid to come out of the thing by itself last? <laughs> or are you not going to be like, let's go, get to marching, get out in front of us, let me keep my eyes on you because you almost just died. Yeah, well, I mean, Emily Blunt essentially has that conversation with uh, John Krasinski later in the movie that, you know, she she takes the blame for not carrying him when she could have. And, and I mean, that's it's essentially the same thing. It's just, I, I, I think, and I'm not, you know, bravo to your niece. She's, she's obviously in the genius level. But I don't think children are, are would be able to handle concepts like that at such a early age. I disagree. I disagree. Um, all of all of my nieces and nephews have been taught how to sign because, and it's becoming more and more of a trend. Um, honestly, uh, a lot of parents are doing it because you have more control over your mo motor function sooner than you do your vocal cords. So I completely disagree. I, I totally wholeheartedly think that he should have if not uh if he didn't already rather understand sign language i i wholeheartedly think he did especially when you look at the interaction between him and his older sister in the aisle like he knows like he he knows yeah he he like, he, 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 he oversight he of, does the of, he does the sign for rocket it's just 
I, I'm, just, I'm just saying, like, be quiet and death are, you know, might be too hard of a concept for a young mind. It's not the sign language part that I'm having trouble with. I'm, I'm just saying the, the putting two and two together. Like, those could be very hard concepts for a child to understand at such a young age. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Again, I'm not a parent. I'm not a, a child you know, psychologist, child development or anything. But I, I disagree with you. I think kids are incredibly capable of understanding situations. I think it's adults that shy away and treat kids like kids instead of treating them like people. I think that wholeheartedly happens. And maybe maybe that is more of what they were going for. Maybe they were trying to uh, set up a situation of where it was more of like, we don't want to strip his innocence or, you know, whatever. We don't want to have a difficult conversation with him about life, death, or, you know, the fact the world's falling apart. But I think when you end up in situations like that, you are responsible to to do that. And I think kids are capable of understanding very deep, visceral um, expectations and and understandings of situations and the right and wrong and the way the world works. Like I totally think that, and, and I could be wrong. And you could be right. <laughs> I, I could. I, I I agree with you that you know they, they maybe they just did not want to to do those kind of concepts with him like trying to keep his innocence but it, and thus that would have been wrong on their part uh i already have a, i i already came to the opinion that they are bad parents because they decide to maybe not decide to but you know they end up having a child having like having an infant or getting pregnant i, I should say in this this new world where they're not allowed to make sound like that to me seemed like the biggest mistake they could possibly make. Like it, you know that you can't make any noise, and that's essentially all a baby does. You know, is make noise one way or another. Uh, not not taking into account the fact that you're gonna have to give birth to this baby quietly. Like that seems like the worst parenting job that you could possibly do. What does that mean for the future of the, you know, future generations of the of humankind if they can't give birth to new babies? That's another story, another storyline somewhere else. But, like, to the point where they know not to eat potato chips because it's too loud. Like, in the grocery store the that they're at in the beginning of the movie, the potato chips are pretty much the only things that are left on the shelves because it's just too much noise. Uh, which I want to say would be suck for me because it's like my favorite food. So, uh, <laughs> I would not exist in the in the the new world. However, um, yeah, having getting pregnant just seems like the worst thing you could do for you, your wife, and your family. Well, but even that, right? That shows what I was talking about earlier. It's it's an inconsistency in how these uh creatures hear and hunt because. The potato chips are not going to cause that much noise. Like you walking around, you farting at night in your sleep is going to be way louder than eating potato chips. <laughs> but there we are. You know, and it's the same thing. Like they're walking around on sand barefoot. It's it's not that much of an increase of sound to be walking around on sand in shoes. Like, you know, they're I... not producing that much volume, yeah. you know, and then 
you see the whole thing where they knock the lantern over and set fire in the house and none of the creatures came breaking the windows down but that was also that was them underneath the house i don't was it no because he looks out a window he walks over to the window and looks out like it's in the middle of their house Uh, okay yeah you might be right uh i mean they did come though it just they ended up getting distracted by the the raccoons which was another thing for me was that how can any animal exist at at this point 400 days in because uh, they don't know they don't have the intelligence to to keep quiet exactly but that's what i mean like there's so many inconsistencies to the rules of these monsters that is unla- i mean we're also we, you're, we're thinking that the monsters themselves are are animals uh they could be intelligent enough to be like well i don't really care about raccoons the only reason why he ended up killing that one is because it was making too much noise and it thought there was something else somewhere else i don't know maybe i mean again you're right we don't have enough information so we can't solve the equation on that one i don't know i would disagree <laughs> i i but I don't know. I mean, I've only seen it once. I mean, we could maybe become like a quiet placeologists, like <laughs> sit down and, and go through it. Well, but I mean, and speaking of the sound thing, right. The, the, there's another problem that happens with the birthing scene in general. Obviously it was never designed to happen in that bathroom. No. It was supposed to happen underground in the little area they set up. Right. Right. But she's in there. We see the alien creature outside of the doorway. And then we see the kid a good distance away from the house set off these fireworks. Okay, I'm on board for this. That's a great idea. The problem is, is that that creature is not very far away from her when she just starts screaming at the top of her lungs. Which I would argue, based on proximity, is going to be way closer and way louder than that firework is going to be, which is going to be outside and muffled and I, farther away from the creature. I but would again, say, well, you know, I don't know. I would say that the these things are inhumanly fast. Like they're faster than cheetahs at this point because the the fact that they can travel between distances so quick, they that it could have been at it's it's going to be at those fireworks. Uh, way before she ends up making that screaming, or not way before, but before she starts screaming. Sure, but I mean, I think when you look at the end of the movie, the, they're very sensitive to high frequency sounds, which her yelling is going to be way higher frequency than the base range of explosive fireworks. You 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 could absolutely right. I just I just think that it's uh, I I didn't have a problem with that part. I guess so. It's I don't I don't know. I don't want it to sound like I'm inherently just crapping all over the movie. I'm not trying to. I actually really really enjoyed this movie. I thought it's a really good movie. It's just that that's what I'm talking about with like the polarization inside of me because the things that are done in this movie well are done extremely well and it feels it feels very fresh this doesn't feel like a movie that we've seen a bunch of times before right um arguably it's a better cloverfield movie than cloverfield paradox (laughs) um, which is ironic because it's not at all for anyone listening an actual cloverfield movie but But it was um, almost one was it really yeah yeah the the two writers um i want to say their names are seth something 
Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Brian Woods and Scott Beck. They were originally uh, asked to if they they like to make this part of the Cloverfield. In an interview with the website Slash Film, screenwriter Scott Beck and Brian Woods revealed the Paramount Pictures originally intended to incorporate a quiet place into the studio's Cloverfield f- film franchise. As Beck said in the interview, I guess it crossed our mind and we had spoken to our representatives about the possibility. It was weird timing, though, because when we were writing the script, 10 Cloverfield Lane was at Paramount. We were actually talking to an executive there about this film and it felt from pitch form that there might be crossover. But when we finally took the final script into Paramount, they saw it as a totally different movie. So... Hmm. Yeah, it was it was really close to being part of the Cloverfield <laughs> franchise uh, uh, until Paramount was like, no, 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 this is good enough to just live to live on its own. So, good on Paramount. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree, and and I I think this movie does stand very well on its own. I just think there's these little contrivances in in some of the rules that I think if they could have just hammered those out a little bit better. Um, it would have made the movie way more powerful than what it already is. And uh, and it is a very powerful movie. It's a very good message. Um, all of the performances are very good. Like I said, it feels like a very fresh movie. It doesn't feel like a movie we've seen 500 times before. Um, Especially when it comes to horror. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, there it, it does also leave you wanting more. Like, you do want to know what's going to happen to the rest of the world. You do want to know what's going to uh, occur for, you know, uh, the rest of this family and stuff like that. So, uh, I, you know, I don't want to just sound like it's all this me crapping on it or raining on its parade because I know that's I know I've done a lot of that in this podcast and I know that's what it sounds like but the only reason I'm doing that is because I enjoyed the movie so much that I wish they would have just hammered down these few little uh, flaps that got away in the wind and I think it could have been just a truly uh, over the top remarkable movie. Yeah, no, I was going to say the exact same thing is that, uh, and I hadn't stated it yet, but I, I loved every bit of this movie. I, I loved every uh, minute of this movie as as I had to be quiet in the movie theater. And uh, and I think the only reason why we are so nitpicky with it is because how much we loved, or I'm sorry, how much I loved the movie. You, already, you stated that you did like the movie. I don't know. I don't want to speak for you. But uh, and I, another nitpicky part would be the fact that uh, the monster was able to rip right through that silo, but right. yet it cannot rip open the truck that the kids are sitting inside of. Like, right? That's yeah. that seemed yeah, a little bit of a flaw too. That's what I mean. It's those little inconsistencies that just because I, I agree with you. You could I, I would totally say I loved it too. I don't have a problem admitting that. And and but you're right. That's what I mean. Like there are these inherent little flaws that just feel like it's inexperience. And and I mean, I, I should not be throwing any stones because I'm living in no house, you know what I mean, in terms of the, <laughs> of the film-making world, right? Um, but I think this is hopefully what also, not only us sitting down and having this conversation, um, but hopefully other people that are very passionate about film that might also be looking at getting into film, uh, filmmaking rather at some point, like hopefully they hear these conversations and it, 
it causes those gears to turn inside of their head to double, triple, quadruple, you know, check their writing and what they're doing and, and to give more insight into things that might potentially offer a, a solution or a better solution. And, and, you know, I, I really can't stress it enough. I don't want it to just seem like mindless uh, barrage of, of belittling this film. That's not my intention at all. Um, but again, there are all these inconsistencies with the monsters directly, which could have just translated it into a very, 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 very powerful movie had they been fixed. So I'd... I will say... Oh, go, oh ahead. go ahead. No, you go ahead. The, I was just going to say, this is my last thing, and then I will climb off my high horse and get <laughs> right onto my mini pony, and we will right into the end of this podcast. Um, okay, so you brought this up where they have the whole scene at the river and John Krasinski and um, the little boy are talking. And I, it obviously had the desired effect on you, which was that you enjoyed this scene. And I enjoyed it too. I just think it would have been even more powerful had we not heard a single spoken word until that moment where the kids are trapped in the truck, the monster's on top of the truck trying to get in there to eat him or kill them or whatever, and John Krasinski is standing there realizing the only thing he can do as a parent is to sacrifice himself. He signs to his daughter totally fine with that but then he screams at the top of his lung uh, lungs and gets killed i think that scene would have been infinitely more powerful if that was the first and only um spoken dialogue we heard and instead of just screaming if he would have been screaming while signing i love you so that his little boy could have heard him telling him that he loved him too before his father dies i think would have just been amazingly more powerful if that was the first and only vocally spoken dialogue in the movie and that's it i'm on my mini pony <laughs> We're riding off now. Fair High enough. Horses. Uh, I mean, I can see what you were saying. I, I could see how that would play out a lot different. Uh, I don't know if I want to say better. Uh, it definitely would have uh, struck a lot harder uh, if that were true. I think that you still have to have the scene with the old man screaming because it sets it up for John Krasinski screaming later on in the film. But... Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think I'd want to get rid of the scene where he's he's talking to his son underneath the waterfall. I mean, do you? I don't know because to me, what what would have set that up is the kid dying at the beginning of the rocket ship. But see, the thing is no, that no, going to cause that. Yeah, well, see, I think the thing is is that you're Krasinski and his son are looking at that old man like, why the fuck would he be sitting there screaming? Like, why? Would he do something? Why would what, why would he be so crazy to do something like that when he knows he knows what's going to happen to him? And then I think it sets up later is that well you know 
it's not exactly the same uh, situation that the old man was in that Krasinski's in, but it's because he's making a decision. He, Krasinski's making a decision to to make the sacrifice, whereas the old man's making the decision to kill himself because his wife is dead, kind of thing. Yeah, I, I, I get, I get the reasoning, and I, I get it. But to me, it's kind of like what you were saying earlier with the whole, you know. Uh, dry erase board in in the workshop that's like what's its weakness it's like the same (laughs) on the nose thing like obviously we know the story's going to go to a point where he's going to have to self-sacrifice we know in that moment that it's going to happen you need the old man screaming in the movie at all i i mean that's that's the that's the argument for foreshadow right i mean it might not be the best foreshadow, but it is foreshadow. It's just it. It's I, I would say it's just preference. Yeah, no, I agree. I totally agree. <laughs> uh, I, one of the things I wanted to bring up was that, uh, and we talked a little bit about it earlier: the design of the monster, and the fact that essentially the monster is the exact opposite of Reagan. You know, uh, it's got not only is it you know got perfect hearing it's got super perfect hearing it can hear the drop from uh miles away or whatever and she obviously cannot hear and the fact that her father is constantly trying to work on cochlear implants that i assume he's just found on other dead bodies places or uh at pharmacies that they've raided and he just cannot get them to work because of a power issue or whatever, you know, he just doesn't understand, uh, audio (laughs) to a point that he can, he can fix it. That, uh, that was another great element to the story. Yeah. Um, I totally agree with you. And I, I think that whole, you know, we don't really ever get it explained to us why he keeps her out of the basement. Right. Like he tells her not to go down. Um, but there is that scene, God, I'm going to sound like I'm getting back on my high horse here. <laughs> There's that scene, though, where she they, they all end up in the basement, and she walks over and sees all of the implants that he was working on. Right. And she has kind of that, that breakdown. And I don't know. That, that whole thing just felt very weird to me. And I know it's just like her coming to the realization that her father's dead now and that he really did love her, um, you know, because she was probably too stubborn to realize that he was working on these implants nonstop for her. But, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that is a great uh, – it's a great way to illustrate the – differences of the of the humans versus you know the creatures and then you know her whole situation in general and the fact that essentially this implant that he put the radio boosters in are what essentially allow their armor to be destroyed so they can now be killed uh is kind of what we're led to believe right i don't know if it's so much destroyed or is that it the flaps open up to expose the the softer skin i think is what right. what, what was shown there but uh yeah no I, I, that's what i'm kind of trying to get at um there was uh the other part the part that i didn't quite understand was the whole argument between him and his daughter when she wants to go off and, and, and fish or learn certain things that he wants to teach his son like 
to me, was that like a, was that like the father's, I don't want to say sexism, but sexism coming out, being like, look, you're the girl, you need to stay here and help your mother, I'm taking the son out, or was it more, he just doesn't know if he can protect her since she can't hear the creatures coming up on them? Well, to me, it didn't feel like either one of those situations. To me, what it felt like was as a parent knowing abilities. And I think deep down, he knew that his daughter would be fine um, in going out into the world and that she would be out and be self-sufficient and knew how to fish and do all those things. And I think he was trying to take the son because the son doesn't know how to do that. The son needs to face his fears. He needs to be able to grow, learn these things, to be able to be strong case something does happen to all of the rest of them um i never viewed it as this thing oh well she's a, in danger i don't want to take her uh, um she's inept at doing those things i think it's just he knew her along that she was going to be picking up the slack for the younger boy and the younger boy wasn't going to learn he wasn't going to be able to start growing and becoming self-sufficient in this new world hmm see and that's why i thought that she broke down and cried uh when she saw all the implants is because she she realized that to me that's what she realized that her father was working on implants so that she could go out with him like that was the only re- that was the only thing that was keeping her from going out on uh scavenges with him or whatever because he was afraid that she wouldn't be able to protect herself since she couldn't hear. Obviously, you know, when he's out with the the son fishing, she runs away from the house and goes and hangs out at the grave uh, or the marker for their youngest kid, Bo. Uh, and she's completely mm-hmm. fine. She does absolutely okay just on her own. She she knows not to make any noise. And she's even to the point where she's just sleeping on the ground out there, which to me just seems stupid. But uh she does it and does not does not get killed the only time she's in danger is when you know she comes across her brother and doesn't realize that there's a monster nearby yeah no and i you know i think maybe she might have had some of those like oh he doesn't want to take me because he doesn't think i can do it uh whatever whatever and i think that is kind of why she runs off but i never got the feeling that he didn't want her out there because she was a liability um, because clearly at the beginning of the movie, they're all out there. Yeah. Um, and we're kind of, it's a pretty normal outing for the family. So, I mean, she's obviously, and I, I more than positive that he would know the strengths and weaknesses to a certain degree of his own kids. And that's kind of more how I took it. I never took it as the situation of like him not wanting her out there because he couldn't protect her or, you know, she couldn't do it or whatever. I had that situation like where I really needed it to just be me and him. I really need him to go through this on his own to learn to develop into this new world. That's kind of how I received that part of the movie. But see, to me, you, he could have took both of them like kind of thing. Like he, uh, to me, it seemed like having to pick or him just saying that he's just going to take the son was the was a mistake. I don't know if that made any sense. Well, you know, it very well could have been a mistake, but I also think to a certain degree as as a parent, hope 
hopefully i don't again i don't know but i would i would imagine as a parent you know you're also going to understand that if you take both of them she's inherently going to be doing things for him and and he's not going to be learning how to become independent he's going to learn how to rely on his older sister to solve all the problems and i feel to me at least that's what that scene felt and and i do think obviously there was the miscommunication to his daughter but i mean how's he say that in front of her well your brother's weak right you are strong you know what i mean so it's like you you're kind of putting one kid off for the other because you can't really say something in front of the other kid right but i don't know to me that's what i felt in that moment okay fair enough so before this uh krasinski had directed three episodes of the office and the movie the haulers uh did you see the haulers i think i did but it's been a watched it i think it's like the one where it's like his mom is dying yeah she she had had a heart attack and she's in the hospital and he comes back to town and i think he's having problems with his wife at the moment She's pregnant. I think so. Yeah. yeah. His wife's pregnant. Yeah, his well, wife wow, is pregnant. Contractors with pregnant wives. <laughs> uh, and then um, uh, he's already announced that he's going to be directing a movie called Life on Mars, I believe is what it's called. Uh, it's a science fiction oh, film. Matt Damon? What was that? It's another movie with Matt Damon? That's what I say. Is it a movie about rescuing Matt Damon? <laughs> Uh, no, I, I don't believe it is. Uh, I, I do remember reading what it was about, but I, I can't for the life of me remember what, what it is, but, uh, what, uh, what do you, how do you feel about him as a director at this point? Like I said, I, I really do think despite everything that we're, um, criticizing here, hopefully somewhat constructively, but again, we don't we're not in the same position making this movie. There's always circumstances that come up that you can't control that alter your movie in ways that maybe you didn't want to. Um, but no, I, I'm I'm very excited for him as a as a director if that's what he wants to keep pursuing. I also hope he continues to act because I enjoy watching him perform. Um, I know he's going to be playing um, Jack Ryan. Yep, um, for Amazon. Amazon. Yeah, the Amazon TV series that's uh, loosely based on. Um, some of Tom Clancy's uh, characters and writing. So I'm looking forward to that. But yeah, I, I hope he does. I hope he does continue to challenge himself and to find projects that he enjoys making and, and to, to go forth and to do those. I'd love to watch more from him. And, and of course, the internet, since The Quiet Place came out, the internet has gone crazy with trying to cast him and Emily Blunt as uh, Dr. Reed Richards and Sue Storm, respectively. Uh, so... You know that's a thing that's out there in the ether. It's you know, obviously it's just fan casting and rumor and stuff. Nothing. He he did, you know, put a little bit more fuel on the fire by saying, "Yeah, we'd love to play those characters," kind of thing. So uh, there's My that thing with that is if they do that, it has to be a series. It cannot be a movie. I don't think either one of them is is ready to. Uh, or wanting to go back to TV series. I mean, I guess technically well, Jack Ryan is a TV series. It's doing a show. Yeah, but it, I don't know. Because it's Amazon, I think it feels like it's a little bit more cinematic, but it is a TV show. Uh, I'm just 
Like they, it's looking more and more. Wait, 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 wait. Fox owns that, right? They they do own uh, Fantastic Four as of this moment that we know of. Um, you know that deal Did with Disney is getting purchase getting, thing go through yet? Not yet, but they are. They have. Uh, you know the 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 Hollywood is a buzz with the fact that it should be going through pretty soon. Well, here here's my pitch for for a show. Okay. Disney reacquires, uh, or not reacquires, but yeah, Disney acquires the rights to the Fantastic Four through acquiring Fox. Right. We already know that Disney's looking at starting up his own streaming service. They're breaking ties with Netflix and kind of going to do their own thing. Disney, don't you need some Disney original streaming shows? (laughs) There you go. Fantastic Four. Because the, the problem is, is the Fantastic Four is... 100% 100% built to be a television series. It is all about relationships, and that's what TV writing is. Uh-huh. It is not about events. It is not about an overall singular message, and that's what film writing is. That's why the Fantastic Four will never be good, or not. that's not true. It'll most likely never be great, no matter who you have involved, if it's done in a self-contained movie. I would say I agree with you for the most part, but The Incredibles proves that wrong. Like, that is essentially a Fantastic Four movie, and it is an amazing movie. Yes, but (laughs) it's also considerably different at the same time. It doesn't have this whole fan lineage that's been established for multiple decades oh you're right you know what i mean like they have a lot of creative liberties and you don't have that with the fantastic four you have all of these things that you have to do and it's virtually or seemingly virtually impossible to do that with that ip in film in my opinion Mm mm-hmm uh okay so i just wanted to say that uh there's a son i found a synopsis for the movie life on mars and i just wanted to read it read it to you real quick nice. uh, the project will be will adapt a short story by uh cecil castellucci titled we have always lived on mars that centers on a woman who is among a handful of descendants of a martian colony long abandoned by earth following a cataclysm the woman one day finds she can breathe the air on Mars, upending her world and that of her fellow colonists. Hmm. So I watched it. Yeah, sounds great. <laughs> uh, oh, series in space. Um, did you see Netflix rolled out a reboot of Lost in Space? I, I have seen that they have done that. I have yet to watch an episode of it because uh, I've just been so busy, but I do want to watch it. I've only heard good things so far. Yeah, I watched the first episode today, and I am ready to watch more. That's <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> uh, good. You know, that, that that's a high praise, so I'm I'm happy to hear that. So, uh, I get. What was that? <laughs> no, I said I wasn't sure if you were waiting for me to say something there, but <laughs> I was. But that's okay. We're just gonna go ahead and wrap up the show. If anybody has uh, an opinion on a quiet place that they'd like to share with us, you can find me on Twitter as Mitchipedia G E R G E R stands for Geek Elite Radio. Uh, you can also find Richard on Twitter as at Ray Cohen R I C O W N. 
the rest of Geek Elite Radio is at Geek Elite Radio on Twitter, at Geek Elite Radio on Instagram, Facebook.com forward slash Geek Elite Radio is our Facebook page, and Geek Elite Radio.com is our website. Check out archived episodes of this podcast and other podcasts on the Geek Elite Radio Network. Richard, tell us about your Twitch channel, though. Okay, yeah. So I've actually been streaming twice a week now, Wednesdays and Sundays at 2 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. We actually started a new game today called Darkest Dungeon, and it's a blast. We've been naming all of the characters after like the regular viewers of the stream, and uh, we actually had, sadly, two of them die today. There's like a <laughs> permadeath thing, so when they're gone, they're gone, and uh, we lost a couple good good folks today unfortunately well that's unfortunate but that's at, uh, yeah that's at uh twitch.tv slash raikowin one r-i-c-o-w-n and the number one there you go make sure to check that out on twitch and this is the mitch and rich show on the geekly radio network saying always remember to geek out geek out. we now return you to your regularly scheduled program